Welcome to our podcast, Inspiring Living with me, Mark Candelaria. I am an architect, blogger, traveler, chef, father, and husband. I am the founder and now a partner of a fabulous 20-person architecture firm specializing in high-end residential architecture, designing amazing homes across the country. Over the last 20 years, we have hosted tours to Italy, Spain, and soon the Oregon wine country. And in the course of all this, I have met a lot of interesting people who truly inspire me. Our podcast is about all the opportunities that are right there in front of us to inspire living. Yes, we will talk about architecture and design, but every week we will venture into all sorts of topics that will inspire you, teach you, and motivate you to inspire living every day. My guests will include a wide gamut of amazing people from those in the design industry to clients to real estate professionals, chefs, artists, sports figures, and philanthropists, and people who just flat out get it. Sit back and enjoy, and let's have some fun exploring all the opportunities that are just waiting for us. Please subscribe and get ready to be inspired every week. Okay, as my dad says, here we go. Welcome, everyone, and thank you always for tuning into our podcast. Wow, it has been a busy spring, and here we are already in May. I haven't done a podcast in a while, only because I've just been swamped with work, and I've worked in a few little trips. All good problems to have, that is for sure. Thanks for giving my 40th anniversary podcast a listen, and so here we are off on year 41. Well, plenty happening, that is for sure. My book, Mark Candelaria Homes, is set to be released this fall. And you can pre-order it on Amazon and Pinterest and plenty of other venues. Just Google it and you will find it featuring 12 special homes along with 12 amazing recipes. My daughters and I enjoyed a wonderful week in the Northeast from New York to Martha's Vineyard and finished in Boston. And I have to tell you, I really enjoyed Boston and cannot wait to return. That little Italy down there is just absolutely fabulous. We have a lot of amazing projects across the country, and we are getting ready to start our project in Jamaica, and we have a nice home and design in Cabo for our clients here in Paradise Valley. So yes, we are truly an international firm. Then throw in our Casa Candelaria kitchen with cabinetry from the amazing Christopher Peacock being built by True Performance. It is almost done, so get ready for some cooking classes and dinner parties very soon, right from Isabel and my kitchen. We cannot wait. Okay, in 12 days, we will embark upon our 20th Candelaria Design Tour and our first domestic tour. We have 16 travelers that will join Isabel, Tiffany, and I 
to the Oregon wine country of the Willamette Valley, and our first stop will be the Knutson Winery, and our podcast today features one of the owners and operators of this lovely vineyard, Paige Knutson. She will tell us about the history and story behind this beautiful vineyard and their amazing wines. So without further ado, let's welcome Paige Knutson. Our guest today is Paige Knutson, and her and her brothers are second-generation owners and operators of Knutson Vineyards in the Willamette Valley of Oregon. In this episode, she shares the rich history of their vineyard and the region that has grown to receive worldwide, worldwide recognition for outstanding Pinot Noir grapes. We were fortunate enough to meet Paige last summer on a guided Pinot wine walking tour that Paige herself led that day. She told us all about the vineyards and the area's history while walking us through the vineyards and sampling the wines along the way. We are so excited to include this wine walk and lunch on our first ever Willamette Valley Candelaria Design Wine Tour this month with 16 of our friends and of course, Isabel and I, and we will join Paige on our podcast today. Welcome, Paige, and good morning. Thanks, Mark. Good morning to you, too. It's great to see you again. Thank you. Same here. I have very fond memories of our walking tour with you that day, and, and um, it's just a beautiful vineyard, and the whole experience is just something I cannot wait to share with our travelers and, and hopefully some of our Instagram followers that day. We'll probably do a, a little bit of live Instagram uh, feed while we're there. We're going to share the journey with everybody that can't come. So we're excited. That's great. Good. Excellent. So Paige, your parents founded these vineyards in 1971. Tell us about this 51 year. I know you guys just celebrated your 50th anniversary uh, last fall, I saw. Mm -hmm. And uh, this property is kind of one of the first in the region. So your parents' vision uh, was pretty paramount when they first purchased this. Tell, about, tell us a little bit about that. So what happened in my mom and dad's life is they traveled a certain amount uh, in their married years. And one trip was to France in the late 60s. I don't know if it was the, the um, first trip that they'd ever been to uh, France, but it was one, it was clearly a seminal trip. And they came back having had a wonderful experience uh, touring the regions of Champagne and Burgundy. And my dad in particular said to himself, you know, Oregon looks a lot like Burgundy. I bet we can do in Oregon what they've been doing in Burgundy for thousands of years. So it was, you know, very much a um, American optimist businessman saying, yeah, let's just do this thing. And he came back. He, he always loved growing things. And my mother was a master gardener. He came back with that attitude. He loved growing things. His father was in a family business that was a greens business. They, they um, created things for holiday season, et cetera. And so they did a lot of um, growing things together. And dad um, started doing his research. So he was a businessman, not in the wine industry. And it'll right. it'll factor into some of the questions that you've uh, written before. And were you, I'm assuming you were around already at this time. Oh, yes. I was in high school. Okay, I was in, interesting. So you had an interesting observation of this whole process. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And yeah. having said that, he was my dad. So, you know, I've since learned from doing a lot of research that he was quite a visionary person and uh, really yeah, on a number of different fronts. Huh. So he was a lawyer by training and he got into, and I don't know the, the reason why he did, but he got into the forest products industry and we moved around a little bit and we moved to Portland when I was in grade school for him to work for a particular company. And uh, eventually he was recruited to work at Warehouser, a large forest products company located on the West Coast as their acquisition specialist. So he was a 
C-suite kind of guy. And he his job was to find businesses for Warehouser to buy hmm. so, so that they could grow larger. That was their strategy. Oh, yeah. And so his perspective on kind of life, how he approached things was how do you scale? His whole demeanor and his perspective was how do you scale businesses? So that when he got to the Willamette Valley, there were maybe five, six people before him, ahead of him who had planted and had had vision obviously also. But his contribution to the industry such as it was at that time was to think big, kind of think big and go home or go home. So his uh, approach was where most people had 10, 20 acres, maybe just their backyard having some plantings. He had the opportunity to buy 200 acres, which wow. he did, and then could start planting 20 and 30 at a time. So that by, and, and he bought in 1971, it was a former walnut orchard that had been destroyed during what we call in Oregon, the Columbus Day storm in 1962. Hmm which was a hurricane um, level storm south of us in the southern part of the Willamette Valley. They measured the wind speed at over 170 miles an hour. Gosh. So it was, and I don't know, it may have happened before, but I know it's never happened since. And the Willamette Valley was particularly impacted. So, and, and you can imagine, at least in Oregon, in October, which is Columbus Day, the leaves are still on the trees. So it just it just blew things down. Wow. And I the, my story, which may not be the real story, but my story is that the people who owned the land just could never, you know, uh, what's the word? Recuperate. Yeah, re, yeah, kind of get get back again. And yep. because when you have a walnut orchard, you need to have big trees that are making walnuts, and yeah, sure. it takes a lot of investment in time takes years. So it was available and he bought it. And so in, uh, in 1971, we started planting in 1972. And also at this time, he had um, developed relationships with pretty much everybody who was doing what he wanted to do, which, as I said, was maybe five or six people. Yeah. And he developed a relationship with Dick Erath, who is also a pioneer in the industry and who had somewhat recently moved up from California in order to be in the wine business. Hmm. But the wine business was at such a level that it wasn't really a business. It was um, an activity that people were pursuing in their spare time. And right. he more was of a, a hobby. Exactly. He was, yep. well, I'd call it more than a hobby that the people really had developed the, the, the pioneers who lived on their property really committed to this thing. Um, Dick started as an engineer or came up to, from California as an engineer and, and was working, his day job was working for a company called Tektronics. But he was scouting, scouting, scouting all the time on weekends and in his free time. And when dad and he met, eventually the conversation turned to how can we work together? And dad said, tell you what, why don't you quit your job? I will pay you a salary. I will build you a house on our property so that you can be on site to help us uh, develop this vision for the vineyard. And that's what happened in 1972. There was a, a home. We I, I can never remember um, exactly where the home came from, but it was a, a kit home so that you've got all the pieces and you just fit them yep. together on site. And today that is what the tasting room is, the two-story. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But it was Dick's, Dick and his family's house when they first moved to Oregon. Uh, sorry, when they first 
started the the um, the project with my father. And with 200 acres, we could plant 20 and 30 at a time. So by 1975, just three years later, we were the largest vineyard in Oregon at 55 wow. acres. And when you were there, Mark and Tiffany, you were. Um, we walked up that one side of the vineyard, which yeah. was about 75 acres. So 55 would still have been smaller than what you saw. And yet it was the largest vineyard in Oregon for about 10 years. Wow, so, yeah. And it, it was um, a big deal, but, but, and the thing about Oregon, which I know that your guests are really going to appreciate is it's a very collaborative place. People were just trying to figure out how to do stuff and everybody talked to each other and that, that dynamic, that norm is very much part of how the industry is now. People help yeah, each other. I notice that when I'm there. I, I definitely feel that. I think that's great because it just elevates the whole the whole industry of that area. Right. And, and in the early days, especially when the wine was being made, and I have more to say about our trajectory in the in the business, you you would start talking about your wine, your vineyard, et cetera. And at some point in the conversation, the uh, the person you were pitching would say, Oregon, tell me again, where's Oregon? You know, so so in the very beginning, everybody had to talk about Oregon before yeah. you got drilled down into what you were doing, you know, specifically. So Dickie, Raff, and Dad were in um, started with this planting project, and Dick was making wine in the basement of his house. Uh, he made, you know, 216 cases in 1972, right out of the basement. Well, by 1974 or five, he was running out of room because clearly there was something going on and he was expanding. And by 1975, both Dick and my dad decided that they needed more space and were willing to get into a partnership together uh, in the winery. And they, so they built what was the first commercial scale winery in the Dundee Hills before the Dundee Hills was a specific AVA. Right. It's always the Dundee Hills. It just yeah. didn't have designation. And we called it Knutson Erath Winery. And there are guests who come on occasion and say, I remember when it was Knutson Erath and we would taste in the, in the, you know, the, the garage, that kind of thing. Interesting. And for Knutson Erath Winery, we, um, produce wine under that label for about the first 11 years of our existence. It was a new facility, which uh, was kind of a big deal. And I was, I was told by um, Jim Marsh, who has since passed away just in the last year, just on the hill further east of us, that uh, my dad coming again, he was a businessman who had some resources and him coming and kind of developing this commercial scale winery was like a big wake up call to people in the industry. It's like, wow, we don't just have to produce our fruit and make our own wine. We actually might be able to produce fruit and sell it to someone right. who could use it for his winery. So yeah. that was a big deal. And, and um, so that continued until 1987. And in 1987, uh, a, a kind of a change happened. And that that was our participation in what we call the pioneering years. So dad right. really was a pioneer of a, of a different kind, but a pioneer nonetheless. And in 1987, uh, other, by 1987, people from internationally recognized quality wine regions were getting the word that something was going on in Oregon. And the first most significant um, kind of development in my father's 
point of view was when Robert Drouin of the Maison Joseph Drouin family, third generation Burgundian, his daughter had been doing some internships in Oregon. He was quite aware of Oregon. Uh, he, he said, you know, I, I think I'll go visit there, visit my daughter, et cetera. And eventually, kind of in the early 80s, maybe mid 80s, he and some uh, other producers staged a competition of Oregon wines, and maybe it was U.S. wines and Burgundies. And at the first competition, which was a lot of Burgundy wineries, uh, it was when David Letts, Irie Vineyards, a 1979 Pinot, um, rated in the top 10. Wow. And that was a big eye-opener for the Europeans, for the oh, French in particular. Yeah. And uh, Monsieur Drouin thought, eh, you know, maybe the wine wasn't being treated properly. Maybe things weren't being, you know, I, I don't know if that was really a good result. So he staged his own competition with his own wines against similar Oregon and uh, producers. And the wine that David Lett produced came in second hmm. in terms of rating uh, just below um, maybe a Grand Cru. I can't remember if it was Premier Cru or Grand Cru of Joseph Drouin. And, you know, that piqued his interest, you might say. And so eventually in 1987, he actually bought a piece of property just over the hill from us in the Dundee Hills. And my father as an international businessman, because he not only was looking for companies to buy sure. domestically for warehouse, he was also traveling in Europe for the same purpose. Um, he said, okay, this is a big deal. <laughs> if, a third generation Burgundian is actually going to put money in the ground in yep. Oregon. He would knew, he would not do that lightly. Right. So that was a big, a big sea change in terms of kind of recognition. In the same year, a group of Australians came to Oregon with the express interest and purpose of creating a commercial scale sparkling wine facility winery. And the gentleman who came, um, the ownership of that business changed kind of over time, but the person who kind of stuck around for a long time was a gentleman named Brian Crozier, C-R-O-S-E-R. -E and he is Australian and quite well-regarded, very well-regarded as a um, leading wine industry participant in Australia. He's got some kind of credentials. I think way. I saw him on that series, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, Our series, we, we tried to, well, we, we actually were able to... Yeah interview that was people very, interesting. very, very important to us. And he was one of them. Yeah. And our vineyard at that point and still is considered a high elevation vineyard for Oregon. Hmm. And high, the higher in elevation you go in Oregon, the more well-suited the fruit is for sparkling wine production. Interesting. And remember, they wanted to be a sparkling wine producer. And yep. I, I, if I, I may have skipped over it, but Dad was completely enamored of a sparkling wine. Yeah, remember remember the before. champagne? Yeah. Yep. So when he got the word that these Australians were looking for a founding vineyard for sparkling wine, he that piqued his interest. <laughs> and so uh, after some amount of conversation... Uh, he decided to become the founding vineyard for what now is called Argyle Winery, which is the largest producer of sparkling wine in the state of Oregon and quite well regarded. Yep. At which point 
he and Dick decided to end their partnership in the winery. Remember, there, there was only in the winery that the partnership was. We always owned the vineyard as the Knutson family. There was no cross ownership of the property. And with that, all of our fruit literally went down the hill to Argyle. Dick regrouped by buying the buildings out of the partnership and continuing to operate Erath Winery and Tasty Room in the middle of our property. Mm. And so for many, many years, well, 20 years, that, that was true under his ownership, many guests and consumers just thought when they came up the road, it was Erath. Right. Um, which was not strictly the case, but you know, who needs to get into details, you know, yeah. yep. is what it is. <laughs> so he, Dick, uh, was quite successful in his operation and was able to sell the business to San Michelle Wine Estates out of Washington State. And at one point, they were the third largest domestic producer of wine um, in the United States, uh, which is a big deal. But most of their holdings are in Eastern Washington. So this was their first acquisition in Oregon. Mm. And remember, oh, well, I may not have said Erath had operated on a ground lease. So we were the landlord. That definitely was something people didn't know. And so when St. Michelle bought his business, we as the landlord assigned the lease to their business deal, but we're very clear that when the lease expired, we were not going to renew it, which gave them and us 15 years notice that something was gonna change. So we started with our planning and we need a little more time anyway, yeah. uh, but they we did, we did extend the lease for a very short period of time to help them with kind of their transition. And in March of 2020, uh, we the lease expired. Mm. And as everyone knows, at that point, there was a global pandemic that had um, started. And yeah. in Oregon, the governor uh, closed down all retail, well, a lot of things, but certainly uh, hospitality and retail, restaurant business, things like that. So one might think, gee, what an inopportune time to gain full control of your property. Eh, well, number one, the biggest news was we gained full control of our property, which we'd been waiting for for 50 years, basically. But secondly, uh, the governor also considered construction to be an essential industry. And renovation, which is what we were doing on the facility, was under that, that um, category. Yep. And so, you know, woo So we continued with our project and the state was able to open up again under uh, state mandate in um, May, middle of May, 2020. And with a few more things we had to finish up, we opened as what we call the outlook at Knutson Vineyards in uh, June of 2020 and have been operating as that, then yeah, that's, that's when we came. Too. We came in July of 2020. Was the first time we did the little tour with you. So we had just gotten started. Yeah, I remember that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that there's the history of the vineyard. You that know, is that, an amazing story. Yeah. That is an amazing story. So did you see yourself working there when you grew up, or did you have other plans? Well, it's interesting. Our dad. So now I need to describe kind of how it worked in our family. Again, dad was in a different industry. He was this acquisition specialist and he was on the road all the time. Right, right. At that point, we had been living in Portland until 1969 hmm. and the warehouser job came up at that point for him. And so we moved to Seattle. 
Okay. So my family and my upbringing is, which is where we're all originally from, is Seattle. And this vineyard thing was dad's thing that he would, you know, see you later, bye. You know, he had four kids. My mother, I'm sure, was going, yeah, what do you mean, see you later, bye, <laughs> as he went down to the vineyard for the weekend. And But he was he was a very successful businessman and knew how to delegate and knew how to, you know, kind of manage things from afar. Yeah. Uh, and he eventually, after his stint at Weyerhaeuser, he was recruited to become the CEO of a very large Canadian forest products company called Macmillan Bloedel. Hmm. And my mother and he moved to Vancouver. Wow. And that was a um, an international business, pulp and paper business, and a very commodity business. So you need, yep. you need to know what was going on around the world because that's how pricing worked yep. based on supply and demand. So, so he really counted on his um, colleagues at the vineyard to do do good things and uh, manage it properly. So uh, when Dick and he were in business together, Dick managed the business and um, we had employees, etc. When we became the founding vineyard for Argyle Winery, they also took on our vineyard management. So essentially our vineyard has been um, professionally managed since the beginning, really professionally managed starting in 1987. And I think it, it accounts for why our fruit is consistent, high quality, and well uh, cared for over all yeah. those many years. Yeah. So when did you actually, did you actually move onto the property as a, as a teenager? At a no, point? no, we did not. And in that, in that sense, we're quite different from most of the pioneers in the industry. The pioneers in the industry who lived on most of them lived on their on their property, right. um, raised their family on the property, their kids who, you know, helped plant vines or dig holes or whatever it is you do with on the property when you're young. We were able to work there on in summers. Uh, again, I was in high school when the, when the property was bought in 1971. Then I was in college. Three out of the four of us went away to college. So we had, you know, other lives. And oh. And because it wasn't our family business uh, and it wasn't, um, we weren't all dependent on the income from that business. It was, as you mentioned earlier, kind of a hobby at that mm -hmm. point. Dad. There was no path to kind of move into the business sure. and work one's way up. So, um, but my brothers, there was a, there was an older home on the property in the beginning that needed to be taken down. And my brothers with some fondness remember kind of bashing that whole thing down to nothing, <laughs> living there at the same time with bats in the belfry. That's, and, that's know, perfect for young guys. That's, that's I know, a, I know. That's a great I know. way to get all that aggression out, boy. Exactly right. And then yep. I was, um, I came a couple of summers and worked for a period of time in the vineyard with, at that point, uh, when Dick Erath was um, managing the property, he hired women whose kids would go to school and they were looking for something to do. Yeah. So there was lovely women who would be, they would talk to the vines as we would go, you know, through going, Oh, you need a little more water. I think I'll help you here. It was, it was lovely. I was great. Cool. Mm -hmm. So you guys were the, really the first commercial vineyard and provided Argyle, a popular taste room in Dundee. How does that work? And how else do you provide grapes? Do you provide grapes for other uh, wineries at this point, or is it just primarily Knudsen? Well, they're, they're, um, it has evolved. So when we 
were not when before we had full control of the property and started making wine under the Knutson Vineyards label again. We uh, all the grapes went to Argyle. Whatever Argyle made is what we would say. You should buy Argyle. Or eventually, much to our delight, they uh, have what we call vineyard designated several of their sparkling wine products. So there's a Knutson Vineyard because we remain in a great relationship with Argyle. So this is where right. I'll talk about kind of the scale of our operation. We are 125 acres planted and producing on a 230 acre piece of property. In a, in a normal year, and I will just also say there is no normal when it comes to agriculture, but in a normal year, right? we kind of look forward to producing about 500 tons of fruit. And when you do the conversion, that, that equates to about 32,000 cases of wine. Uh, we are about, at the moment, we are a, about a third of the um, source of all of Argyle. Argyle is about a 90,000 case winery. Okay. Knutson Vineyards brand, which you will taste and you did taste, yeah. um, you and your Fantastic. group taste, <laughs> is about a 2,500 case winery. So we really count on other producers to buy our fruit. And we have this long, long standing relationship with Argyle. So for a period of time, they took all our fruit. Then when Knutson, this is just back in 2012, was our first harvest under our Knutson Vineyards mm-hmm. brand. We started taking part of our fruit and we were, the contract allowed us to do that. So that was not a, you know, kind of contentious issue. Right. Um, we are growing and then we decided, and within this amount that's in the contract to, um, to take for ourselves, we could sell to other people. And so in very small amounts, we've started selling to well-known winemakers so that we can uh, have the experience of a different set of hands making wine from our vineyard and then be able to talk about that and compare. Interesting. Yeah. So there may be four or five producers outside of uh, Argyle and ourselves. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. That's great. So tell us about all the wonderful experiences offered at Knutson. Obviously, I did the, I love your terrace out there. Mm-hmm. And then you got the hike up to that little cottage or whatever it is, where I think we're going to be having lunch with our travelers. Good, and good. That view, that, that view is just absolutely amazing. So I'm hoping, yeah. knock on wood, we have good weather. I've been watching the forecast and it looks pretty good. So I hope so. It's been, I don't know how it's been in Arizona, but it's been cooler than normal. In, yeah, we, uh, but we haven't hit 100 yet, which is pretty unusual. So, um, so we're kind of happy about that here in Arizona. We're trying no, to stretch our, yeah. our spring. Now, you guys had some cold weather, too, I saw. It yes, was snowing a couple of weeks ago. Yep, there was that. There was a hard frost, which is, you know, yet again, there's always something in agriculture. Yeah. So, But you guys made it through okay? Well, the jury is still out, actually. Oh, so we'll see. Uh, there were some dire warnings that were very premature. Hmm. Um, which I was sorry that that was uh, promoted out there because yeah. uh, we really won't know because it's been cool. Yeah. What the, what, if any, the effect has been, and it's, you know, in our vineyard, you just have to picture how um, bud break happens that the buds swell. So you see little nodules and then yep. all of a sudden you start seeing a little bit of a leafy looking yep. thing. And the higher up you go in elevation, as we've described, where you don't need to get it, you don't want to get as much maturity in your grapes for a sparkling wine. There definitely was less showing than at lower elevations. Mm. In addition, we grow Pinot Noir and Chardonnay with a little Pinot Meunier. 
And the Chardonnay was a little bit farther along than the Pinot. So, you know, I think it's going to be um, very uh, dispersed about yeah. if, anything, if, it, if we're going to have an issue, it's going to be fairly dispersed. Yep. And that certainly is true in the Willamette Valley. Generally, there are so many microclimates and exactly. so many different yep. varieties that are produced. Everybody's going to have a different experience. So yeah. again, this, this press article while it was trying to you know have a scoop i'm sure it was was just very premature yeah. the other thing to really underline is if there is an issue it will be a quantity issue not a quality issue that's where i was just going to go i think what's what i always find is just then the taste the flavors become so unique and so you know memorable of a certain vintage of that year it's just like oh my gosh this wine is unbelievable so to me, it's always, like you said, and then there's less of it potentially. So the value of it just goes through the roof. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's what I love about wine is it's just such a art and science combined. And then you throw, you know, what God throws at it in terms of weather and light and soil and all those things. And it's just, it's just one of the most miraculous experiences, I think, to have just an amazing glass of wine. And then to experience a property like yours at the same time just adds to that whole experience. It's just yes. incredible. No, so sorry, you can tell my enthusiasm. Yes, no, no, I, I appreciate that very much. But I, I want to get back to the question because I, yep. I uh, have appreciated you asking that. Before we had control of the property, we didn't have a tasting room. So this whole tasting room thing is completely new to us. And you may have heard me say when we got together, we consider ourselves a 50-year-old startup yeah. in terms of the tasting room activity. Now we've hired people who know what they're doing. And so we're, but you know, a new, a new business is a new business plus opening up in COVID. What can you do? Who will come? How do they feel comfortable? But one of the things that we almost immediately started was guided hikes in the vineyard. Love it. And number one, it's a great way to learn about the agriculture. You're on the ground. You can see um, everything about the aspect and the alignment and what the view is and how high you go. And you can appreciate, you know, how high you exactly. go. It's a real hill. Yep. But the other thing was that you could be outside and yeah. you could usually distance. And, you know, it was it was actually something that people really yearned for. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that that's and then over time, I was able or I have been able to um create four different routes. Again, we're 125 acres planted and producing, and you you just did one route, right. which is one view. We yep. can go completely on the other side of the vineyard. So we have two slopes. One is 75 acres, one is 50 acres. You can go out and kind of see where the Chardonnay is. You can walk up to the cabin, which is what yep. you were talking about. And that's a whole different view of the Lamette Valley. Yep. I am completely biased, but I think we have one of the best views in the state of Oregon. <laughs> when it comes to- I, I will not deny that. It is absolutely stunning. And then the, like you said, the experience of it is just so great. And then you get up there and you have this delicious lunch and you're drinking some fantastic wine. You see the beautiful fresh air and the beautiful view. It's mm-hmm. it's just a memorable experience. And, and you know, that's the other thing I've learned in, in a lot of things that involve artistry is you know, you can go to a restaurant, order a glass of wine, and let's just say it's $18 or $20 for a glass of wine or, you know, buy a bottle of wine. But until you have experienced how that wine is made and and the land, then you look at that price of a bottle of wine, you go, this is an absolute bargain. <laughs> because you, 
you're soaking in all those memories and everything else that went along with the association of making that glass or bottle of wine. And it's just, to me, that's one of the best experiences of the whole thing. And there's always something more to learn. So yeah. we have the hike experience. And then of course we have wine tasting experiences. The facility has enough space where we can do private tastings, private dinners, private lunches. There hasn't been the opportunity to do much of that because of COVID restrictions. Yeah. But what we're finding, it's been interesting in the last, maybe maybe even just four or five months, we instead of a group, a large group of people being six or eight, we're getting groups of 15, 25. Yep. You guys are going to be 18, yep. which we can accommodate because we're outdoors and we have the space. Yeah. Uh, we also have become, or have, I feel strongly that it's important to be family friendly. Yep. Um, you know, you can, there's challenges when children show up at the vineyard because you just want to be safe and have them be supervised properly, et cetera. Sure. But in order to keep their attention focused, we have developed something called the Kids Juice Challenge, where when the parents get their flight of wines to enjoy, the kids get three separate um, uh, cups of juice. We've learned to put a top on them with a straw <laughs> because things happen. And then they, yeah, the parents or the kids? Well, no, <laughs> the parents we expect can handle uh, oh, yeah, their okay. own stem. We haven't seen our group yet. So no, not <laughs> we yet. might want the sippy cups. <laughs> we might, we, we can provide. <laughs> and then we've created a, a um, oh, a, a, a piece of paper, you know, yeah, kind of legal size. Yeah. So coloring sheet and we have color crayons, plus they get their own little snack pack. Oh, that's fine. And, that's and the kids parents love it. And again, during COVID, what were you supposed to do with your kids? If you wanted to do anything outside of the house, you had to sure. get a babysitter, but did you know the babysitter? Did you want the babysitter in your home? You know, you, there are a lot of things that were challenging. Yeah. So people love to bring their kids. And then if I have time, because you know, I'm on the property a lot. Yep. I take, I take the kids out in little forays and uh, gives the parents Little, little break, little break, but then I, I enjoy these kids. They're all very curious and interested, and they well, it's come. Great. you're creating young customers. I don't know about you, but these kids grow up awfully quick these days. So it's like you're you're basically giving them a memory and experience that they're going to come back to, you know, 10, 15 years later. So yeah. I, that's I think that's very smart. The other one that caught my attention on your list here, and I'm going to have to definitely come. My uh, uh, Isabel and I are going to come back out in. Uh, Halloween weekend, we've oh. discovered it's just the most beautiful time to be there with the fall color and it's just fantastic. But you got this truffle hunting escapade. Yes. So I want to know a little bit more about that. <laughs> so before COVID restrictions, there's there's been a very successful festival during the winter because truffles, which are a, a mushroom that yeah. grows underground, not above the ground, are uh, there was a truffle festival and it, people came from all over the United States to go to the truffle festival. And I went because we got to pour one year at the dinner. And I thought, well, oh, this is kind of cool. I wonder if we have truffles on our property. Cause remember we have 230 acres and only 125 of it is planted. So I got developed a friendship with, or at least an acquaintance with a woman who had a truffle hunting trained dog. And I said, would you be willing to come to my property and see if I have yeah, truffles. Yeah. So she did. And the dog within three minutes found a first truffle. And we thought, Eureka, this could be fun. Yep. And so we there again, January and February are not months where people are streaming to the vineyard because the weather is challenging and they have other things on their, their plate. 
but they come for a truffle hunt and uh, we've had groups of 12 again because you could be outside the yeah. whole time and we found quite a few truffles now you get you get on the ground if you want to you can you can have a nice walk in the woods if that's yeah. all you want but if you want to find truffles you are given a trowel and you can to you too oh, can get on the awesome. ground and start to dig away and then we have a tr- a, a mushroom themed lunch afterwards it excuse me, it has been on the terrace outdoors because of the restrictions, but I think going forward, we can have it inside. Yeah. And then the truffle, it's not guaranteed that we will sure. find truffles. And it's not guaranteed that every truffle you find is a culinary level quality truffle. Sure. So the we, we provide uh, truffle infused butter as something that we've done before or truffle infused oil as a, a takeaway for people. It's been very successful. Okay, so that's in January, February, huh? Correct. Mm-hmm. I'll have to remember that. Please do. Yeah. Oh, that sounds great. So I understand you focus on sustainability in your uh, viticulture practices. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. First of all, we have been around for such a long time. We, you can see on the vineyard the many different ways that we planted, both for spacing, clones, elevation, etc. And you can imagine that in a 50-year time frame, um, techniques and knowledge about how to manage the land have yeah. um, developed and improved. So all the way from looking to California at the beginning to see, so what are those people doing? they have a pretty successful wine industry spacing the vines quite far apart both in the rows between the rows but also between the vines eventually in oregon you you need to have your vines um, be a little challenged otherwise they put all of their energy into shoots and uh, tendrils as opposed to grapes yep through fruit so our spacing has become much closer we're now Optimal for us is five feet between vines, five feet between rows. That gets you the required number of shoots to get the required yield that you want from an acre of land. It's it's actually quite, you have to know your math. (laughs) Uh, But in the beginning, every alley or row um, was tilled to release nitrogen into the soil, which is a nutrient that the grapes really appreciate. Mm -hmm. But that leaves you um, open to issues like erosion, which when you're on a hill, if you aren't aren't mindful of erosion, eventually we're talking many, many, many years, all your dirt's going to end up at the bottom of the hill. So you have to, you know, figure out how to keep your soil where you want it. So over time, and there's a really cool book called Dirt by a, if you haven't seen it, it's by a gentleman who is a MacArthur fellow. So he's one of these, he's gotten one of these genius grants. I'm not going to remember his first name or even his last name, but it talks about this idea of trying to keep the soil where it is, because the other thing is we would, we would till in between uh, the vine rows again to release nutrients. But secondly, um, then we would you replant things that can also replenish the the nutrients in the soil. So, but what's been developed now is what they call regenerative agriculture, where you don't till, but you can put new nutrients in the soil with what they call a no-till drill. You just kind of put plants where you need them. So just recently, again, the other thing about agriculture, at least in vineyards, because it's such a perennial crop, you don't do anything fast. You 
see, you try a few things over here, you see how it works, and then maybe you you exactly. extend it to larger and larger <laughs> sections. So we are we have just tilled certain parts, certain rows of the vineyard, and we'll replace what was there in terms of the the um, plants in between with plantings that will not need to be tilled up for another three years. So again, dealing with erosion, deal, but getting the nutrients to the plant so that, you know, it's kind of slowly, slowly sure. turning into that kind of thing. We also, one of the ways that my dad was visionary, he looked at the Portland metro area is about a 40 minute drive, yeah. 45 drive from the vineyard. And he said to himself, you know, eventually people are going to come out here and uh, the people, if there's an, an issue with water, the people are going to get the water before agriculture gets the water. We should be self-sufficient when it comes to water. And I believe that we bought a property without water because over time we drilled what we now have as six wells. Early on, you could get um, uh, clearance, if that's the right word, from Oregon Department of Agriculture or De Department of Ecology. I can't remember yep. who it is. Because every well now in Oregon is registered and monitored. So every year we need to provide the state with kind of what yeah. happened to your water. Gotcha. But during that time, we established six different wells, all for irrigation. And at a certain point, my dad also said, you know, there's a lot of rain that comes down and all that water has to go somewhere. Let's create some surface water collection ponds. Yeah. So there's a big pond on right below the cabin, which is kind of off to the south, and then another pond that collects water as you come up right. the road. And so we are completely self-sufficient uh, with water. And nowadays, it's very hard to establish a water right. So now some people would say, why do you need so much water? Well, we irrigate, and that's not everyone's decision in Oregon, but it was a um, some information that we got from the Australians who have to deal. They're in a drought, um, oh, drought all the time. They use irrigation. Dad was always open to innovation in the vineyard. And Brian Crozier, this gentleman we talked about before, said, "You know, Cal, you might want to try irrigation. See what you think." And so yeah. we have the first block of drip irrigated uh, land in the Willamette Valley, which was planted in 1988. And he and the, the vineyard managers at that time said, you know, it's really nice to have this, especially when you're planting uh, new vines, they need water. And I can imagine, I should ask Dick Erath this, in the early days, we didn't have irrigation. They must have watered by hand. hand. Water. Yeah. yeah, they must have Crazy. hand watered. Wow. So, that, so now, uh, and there, there are other philosophies about this. There's a deep roots coalition in Oregon that's very, very clear that you should not need to water your vines. You need to be having their roots established very deep, et cetera. So it's not like we, we were, you know, have the answer, sure. but what it's providing us is insurance at this point, especially yep. with climate change. And if you just think about last year in that 2021, Portland was one of the places that had one of these heat domes. Yeah, I remember that. That was my and one. No, of my and nobody years. has air conditioning because yeah. you don't need it in the Pacific Northwest. Well, it got to 116 degrees. In that was crazy. Really crazy. Well, yeah. we turned on the irrigation when we needed to. And that's the other thing about drip irrigation. First of all, it's very, very efficient. 
So we're not just spraying water all over. Right. The place, but you can turn it on when you need it and you can turn it off when you yep. don't need it. So it yep. becomes another tool in keeping your vines happy because there is a certain point at when the heat gets too high where the vine will just shut shut down its operation. Yeah, I'm too stressed, don't want to deal with it. Come back to me when it's a little cooler. And in a in a um, climate, a, a cool to moderate maritime climate that Oregon is in, at the end of the growing season, you might have the rains come in. And if your grapes have shut down for a week and a half in the middle of the growing season, you've lost that. Yep. Maybe at the other end of the, you know, by harvest, because they don't have the maturity you need by the time the rains come. It's crazy. It's so interesting. So do you have any special organic low sugar or uh, sulfate-free wines? No, we do not produce those. We're not against those, but we don't produce those. We are considered, we're monitored by two third-party certification organizations. One is called LIVE, which is an acronym for Low Input Viticulture and Enology. And we've, in order to get that certification, we follow their guidelines for, you know, how to, how to manage the vineyard. Gotcha. And then we're also, there's another organization in Oregon called Salmon Safe. And if you, once you get to Oregon, you, you know that salmon are a big deal. Yep. And, and so their requirements are that whatever you're using on your vineyard or near your tasting room doesn't, isn't a, uh, a product that will damage a salmon further down the line. So salmon safe and live certified, which we call sustainable. We manage sustainably, but we, we aren't the the things that you've suggested. Right. So it's kind of interesting. One thing that we were working on um, prior to the whole COVID thing, in fact, we had it organized and we had it sold out was a tour to Napa and then COVID came. So we decided not to do the trip. And in that process and in that time lag, we discovered Oregon. My daughter had gone to school at the university of Portland and she goes, Dad, instead of instead of Napa, why don't you try Oregon? I said, Ah, Oregon, come on. Napa, everyone wants Napa. And she said, No, come on, Dad, try it. Come, come with me. Let's go over there. And that's when we met you. It was in 2020. Yes. And I've got to say, I, you know, I've, I've been to Napa several times. I really, really love the Oregon experience. It's just um, it's a lot more comfortable. It's not so pretentious. I find the people there to be absolutely just so friendly and so fun. So do you, what's, what do you see in terms of the comparison between Napa and the Oregon Willamette Valley? I mean, from your perspective, what's my, the difference? My sense is that Oregon is like what Napa was maybe 30 years ago. Totally agree with you. The other thing is we're much smaller. So the California wine industry, we're, well, let me put it this way. We are 1% wow. in of the entire industry of, of wine production in the United States. Interesting. But the quality of our wines, we way outperform so that 90 scores, scores of 90 from Wine Spectator, wherever yeah. score you, we represent 17 to 18% of those scores. Interesting. Uh, so our quality is very high while our quantity is very small. So we go every year, there's something called the Oregon Wine Symposium, which is our trade organization. You know, everybody, when you go, you know, everybody and yep. they know you and you have a relationship. And so it's very relationship based. Yeah. Uh, you can have a very intimate experience. People know each other. People. Yeah, that's I, I love the energy there. It's just, it, like I said, it's just this, you feel very like you're part of a family, even as a visitor. And I think that's what, what's really drawn me. And that's what I'm really excited about bringing my 
travelers, I think they're going to feel that that warmth and, and that just that real friendly environment. And it's just easy. It's not a it's like you said, it's not that big of an area. And all the tours that we're doing are, are just in a few miles of where we're staying. So it's I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So yeah, we're really looking great. forward to it. OK, mm -hmm. so I have a little sidebar page. Um, yes. When we first met, we discovered we have a Durango, Colorado connection. I grew up there and graduated from Durango High School. What was your connection? Well, I married a man. And so I've been married for 36 years and his family has been in the newspaper industry for kind of their careers. And uh, the last name is Coles, C-O-W-L-E-S. Yep. There's another Coles family, it turns out, in eastern or eastern, hold on there, eastern Washington, also a Coles family, which owned the newspaper. Okay. Very distant cousins. And one of my husband's aunts moved to Durango with her husband way back and they bought the Durango Herald. There you go. Emily still owns it. That's great. Uh, her name, her married name, her maiden name was Coles, Morley Coles, but she married a gentleman named Arthur Ballantyne. Oh. And so it's the Ballantyne family and um, Richard, her oldest has managed the business and Morley was very involved in the business until her death, maybe 10 years ago. Wow. So we we yeah. are Durango, and they've it's been very interesting. You may have followed this. They've have a whole uh, digital strategy, and it's they're not just a newspaper company; they're a media company. Yeah, in a fairly small community. Yeah, but it's my, my mom. My mom still reads the digital version every day, That's and uh, my brother is a federal judge there in Durango. So no kidding! Wow. Yeah. So we're we we still we're still up to speed on the Herald. That's for sure. That's that's good. Well, and a lot of the kids in uh, Jay's, my husband's name is Jay, Jay's side of the family have interned there and, you know, yeah. worked there. It's, it's great. It's, 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 it's a, a property that engenders a lot of pride in the family. That's great. Well, I know we have a lot of Durango listeners on our podcast, so they'll be very, very interested to hear that little sidebar. So awesome. Um, tell us a little bit about your daily life now in the Willamette Valley. We'll wrap it up with that last question. Okay. I, um, so Again, there wasn't anything to do really with the business besides manage from an ownership standpoint until yep. the property became um, central sure. to what we can do. Yep. So I am the managing partner of three brothers, all through all four of us own the business, but I'm on the property. And we, we knew going in that as a family owned business, we wanted a family member to be on site, visible, to not only welcome people, but to uh, establish a tone that would reflect our values and what we feel is important. And we're, we're a very welcoming group. It was definitely how our dad and mom, you know, they, especially my dad, attained a certain um, level of operation, if you will, that might have made someone else be, you know, kind of unattainable and only at a certain sure. level. He was a very accessible person. He always looked for other people. To, to, it wasn't just the most important people in the room. Right, right. So, and, and that trickled down to his kids as well. So yeah. um, for the last couple of years, I have been on property and we've developed our uh, kind of how we do things and what we want to provide to people. Yeah. And uh, I think it shows in how Absolutely. what the experience is. Yep. And, you know, it's a, it's a competitive industry, I would say, to uh, in the sense that you as a consumer have a lot of choices when you come yeah. to Oregon. Yeah. And, a lot and of they're all good. Experience. 
Yeah. They're all good. They're all very different. And they're all very different. So what would the distinctive competence of Knutson Vineyards be where you would say, you know, I want to go to Knutson with my time as opposed to somewhere else. Sure. And we think a distinctive competence is that an owner is there to meet you, to greet you, to get to know you. Uh, and I must say, people, people look at me and go, wow, you know, that's kind of cool. I said, I could be in a lot of different businesses. <laughs> and this one, it's pretty cool where part of your job is you get to yeah. take people out on a walk on the vineyard. I mean, that's pretty well, cool. You're a good walker. I saw you scale up that, that hill pretty darn quickly. It's like, whoa, this, this lady's got it going. So really the experience and your, your uh, vineyard will be our first stop on our oh, tour. Great. And so we're very excited and, and it is a, it is a real pleasure to meet you and, and, you know, have it, have that welcoming feeling that we got the first time we were there. I really think that's going to really make a big impact on that initial experience for our travelers. So oh, good, good. you're an you amazing know, lady. That's all. Oh, I thank you. I appreciate that. You know, while we're still recording, I just want to remind you too, that we, since the early seventies, uh, when my parents were very involved, they established this, um, uh, tradition of having a harvest party and inviting all of their friends down for the harvest party. And in the early days, they literally, every guest would get a basket and a pair of clippers and they'd be sent off into the vineyard to clip grapes. We've gotten a little too professional for that at this point, but <laughs> we've continued that tradition. It started with 12 people the first year, and then it's now with COVID and now again, uh, control over the entire property. We had 200 people there wow. this year. Everybody got to go all over the vineyard for different tastings, different food. And it's yet another thing. And I know where I was going with this. Everyone in the family came. So That's there neat. are there are eight grandkids. Some are married. Some have significant others. So we And they all had a job. So you've met me enough to know that I'm a fairly organized person. Everybody had a job. They knew what time they had to be where, and uh, and they loved it. They loved it. It was super fun. So that's another fun time to come. Now, when is that? What is the harvest party? Well, the harvest party, we try and make it uh, the second or third weekend in September. Okay. We usually have done it kind of 17, 18. Maybe that's the middle of September. We have a wedding in the family, so we're going to have it on the 24th of September this year. Okay. Well, we'll be... We'll be in Italy drinking wine that that year on our Italy tour. So maybe we'll I have sorry. to. I feel so sorry for him. <laughs> and we are doing a Burgundy wine tour next year. So we oh, want, might want to chat with you a little bit about that. That would be super. I would yeah. love that. Well, so, thank you so much. Tell us how, Paige, how do we find you? And um, where do we find you on Instagram and all those good places? Give us your little. Oh, so we are on all those things. I have a really terrific marketing manager who has us out there all the time. Our yep. website is www.knutsonvineyards.com. We do pronounce the K. Not everybody who's a Knutson does. It's, it's a Scandinavian like Smith, you know, it's, yeah. it's Knutson. K-N-U-D-S-E-N. Uh, we do have Instagram. Uh, and I don't know the handle, but the, it's there. And yeah, Facebook you'll find well. it. It's on Knutson somewhere. So yep. I, I found it. And it's a lot of fun to follow. Yeah, good, good, good. Yeah. So we look forward to seeing you in a in a couple of weeks. And like Excellent. I said, our first stop, I think we get there on Thursday, and I think we visit with you on Friday. Perfect. That'll be great. So we look forward. To, thank you so much for taking the time to do this, and uh, we'll see you up there soon. Thank you, Paige, and I love that Durango connection. Our Oregon travelers are in for an amazing experience. Make sure you follow us on my personal Instagram page and our Candelaria Design page, where we will definitely do a few live Instagrams. 
Okay, we have some more fun and inspiring podcasts in the works, including more podcasts with artists, chefs, realtors, branding experts, and a couple of our Candelaria Design 2021 MVPs. So stay tuned. We have a few of our virtual cooking classes coming up too, so stay tuned for those also. Okay, I want to say a big thank you for the subscribes and reviews. Please take five minutes to give us a review, and if you do, we will enter you in our drawing where you will receive free round-trip airfare for one of our Candelaria Design Tours. Seriously, you cannot lose here. So go right now and give us a rating and review along with a subscribe and then email or direct message me that you did so and we will get your name in the hopper for this drawing. We are planning Candelaria Design Tours next year to Paris and the Burgundy Wine Region. That's for next June. And then we will start our September 2023 tour starting in Lisbon in September, Portugal, then off to the village of Candelaria in the Canary Islands, finishing in Marrakesh, Morocco. How does that sound? So give us a review and send me a message so I know you did, and we will get you in the drawing. We do our best to inspire living in everything we do, from our podcast to our cooking classes to our tours, and of course, with our Candelaria Design Homes. Okay, have a great week, everyone. Let's stay safe, and let's all live our lives with love, compassion, grace, and positivity. See you all soon. Because Inspiring Living is all about the people and the organizations that inspire us, we are excited to have Monogram Appliances as one of our sponsors. Anytime we do a new kitchen or a kitchen remodel, Monogram Appliances are what we recommend to our client. Their appliances are the definition of luxury, meticulously detailed using the finest materials and an ownership experience that is second to none. This is how Monogram is always thinking ahead and inspiring and elevating the kitchen experience. Because at Monogram, they don't just elevate one thing, they elevate everything. I want to say a big thank you to my good friends at Stockett Tile and Granite Company, where your project is our priority. I want to thank the Stockett team, along with so many others who contributed to the success of our fabulous demonstration kitchen in our new Candelary Design office expansion. You will have to check out online our video cooking classes and our kitchen is amazing. I've had the pleasure of working with the Stockett team for nearly 40 years on many spectacular projects and trust me, they are the epitome of excellence when it comes to tile, marble, and granite work bar none. Their skill and customer service is impeccable and the bottom line is they are just good people. I have traveled with and dined with and just had good times both personally and professionally with Dave Stockett and his lovely wife Becky and they are the best. When it comes to your next tile and stone project, make sure Stockett Tile and Granite is a part of your team. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed our podcast. We encourage you to write a review, screenshot it, and share it with your friends. Please instant message it to me and follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We thank you for listening, and we look forward to sharing more insights to inspiring living next week.